Less than a week ago, Vladimir Putin's forces invaded Ukraine, starting the biggest ground war in Europe since 1945. Peace on our continent has been shattered. We now have war in Europe on a scale and of a type we thought belonged to history. So here is how the Russian attacks work, and we learned it easily. First is the shelling starts, the siren, the shelling, uh, and if you're lucky, it will hit the buildings not near you. Second, then, the Russian troops are trying to get in. And it's not like, again, all the Europeans and ourselves as well, imagine war when, you know, Nazis are marching uh, at the central street. It's like a group of people who would uh, look like normal, normal citizens, but they are armed and they are trying to get into the city. And the complicated issue is that they're moving with small groups. Uh, that's why the resistance crews, the resistance teams need to be there to neutralize them. Because then in a couple of hours, there will be another shelling and then another group of Russians trying to get in. They are told that they are coming as liberators, that there is like some Nazi government here and that they are coming in to, to free troops and they will receive warm clothes, uh, money, uh, food and probably beautiful women who will be throwing themselves at uh, the soldiers. Well, I, and I'm not exaggerating. This is like what in their mind. We condemn this barbaric attack and the cynical arguments to justify it. It is President Putin who is bringing war back to Europe. It's not as if Putin failed to make his intentions clear. On the 25th of April 2005, he gave his annual State of the Nation address to the Russian parliament and people. It was what political theorists call revisionism or revanchism, a leader saying he wants to rewrite history, creating a new world order to recover lost territory and status. First and foremost, Putin said, it is worth acknowledging that the demise of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. As for the Russian people, it became a genuine tragedy Tens of millions of our fellow citizens and countrymen found themselves beyond the fringes of Russian territory. Putin didn't mention Ukraine. He didn't have to. Ever since he was a KGB colonel in East Germany as communism collapsed back in 1990, Putin always wanted the old Soviet empire back. In Ukraine, Georgia, Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, and other former Soviet satellites, his words were taken as a declaration of intent. Well, um, I think if anyone can understand or relate to whatever is going on right now in Ukraine uh, is uh, Georgia and Georgian people, because we went through the similar scenario in 2008. And we predicted that Russia would not stop at Georgia, then in, at Ukraine in 2014. And I think this is a logical continuation of 
Russia's aggressive policies and also of the failure of the Western policies to stop Russia. Natia Siskuria is an associate fellow at London's Royal United Services Institute and an advisor at Chatham House. Georgia was attacked by Russian forces in 2008 in what was known as the Five-Day War, Europe's first war of the 21st century. Natia spoke to us from Georgia's capital, Tbilisi. There's a huge solidarity towards Ukraine among Georgians and uh, we fully acknowledge that our fate is being entangled with the fate of Ukraine. And uh, there is a sense and understanding that Ukraine is fighting a war for us and for the entire Europe and uh, Europe's uh, security and uh, future. Uh, At the same time, Georgia has also been part of the Russian ultimatums uh, with regards to the decision of the Bucharest summit of 2008 when uh, NATO allies stated that both countries would become members of NATO um, eventually. Uh, And in many ways, both uh, Kyiv and Tbilisi share the same fate and face the similar threats uh, because Moscow sees the precedent of democratic process um, and the establishment of transparent institutions, democratic institutions, both in Ukraine and Georgia as a direct threat to its authoritarian regime. Um, I think the events that are being unfolded in Ukraine are tragic. Uh, We are facing, we are looking at the humanitarian tragedy as well as um, how Russia is uh, trying to fulfill its uh, imperial ambitions. And uh, this is just um, a a reflection of what Putin has been uh, saying for um, the last, uh, for for decades actually. And um, uh, Ukraine's um, aspirations to become a member of NATO, member of the European Union, have been seen as a threat. I think what we see now is fearless fight of Ukrainian people. And um, I think uh, in many ways, Putin has put himself into the corner because um, I, don't, uh, I don't think that in a long-term perspe- perspective, this uh, will be a rational decision from his uh, point of view. In this new series of The Big Steel, we'll begin by exploring whether Putin's invasion of Ukraine makes his ambition to redraw Europe's borders possible, or whether he must fail because the world at last has woken up to his aggression and lies. The Big Steel began as a podcast examining how Vladimir Putin stole Russia's wealth, becoming the world's most successful criminal. The kleptocrats in the Kremlin also stole something even more precious, the rule of law, democracy, freedom and Russians' constitutional rights. They fixed elections, threw opposition activists in jail killed rivals and enemies, sometimes with poison. And now, Vladimir Putin is stealing your security and mine, the security of the world, by invading Ukraine and threatening the use of nuclear weapons. Whatever happens next, this is Putin's war, not a war demanded by the people of Russia, quite the opposite. Throughout the big steel, we've been impressed sometimes astonished at the remarkable bravery of ordinary Russians standing up to the Putin regime despite the consequences. Right now on the streets of Moscow, there's a real sense that no one wants this war. No one except Putin. We wanted to capture some feelings from Russia's capital, so here are a few voices recorded over the past few days. My name is Valeria and I'm from Moscow. 
yesterday. I woke up in a completely different world. I started to to read the news and I felt terrible. I felt ashamed. I was afraid and I didn't know what can I do to stop the war. I cried for the whole day. It was hard to work and I felt I felt silly, I felt stupid because how can I work when uh, Russia declared war with Ukraine? I think that almost every Russian person has um, friends or relatives or acquaintances in Ukraine. It feels like we are killing our brothers and friends. I feel safe in Moscow and there are kids playing in the playgrounds and people walking their dogs. It, it doesn't feel right. People who blame Russians for the war, they just don't understand the real situation because we don't live in a democratic state. We didn't vote for Putin and we didn't want them to rule our country. I live in Moscow, Russia, and of course I'm against the war. I don't uh, choose uh, the president, don't choose this government. I don't support uh, their actions, but uh, my absence of uh, actions, my silence uh, lead to this war too. I think uh, that Russian, Belarusian and Ukrainian now in the same boat, but not the boat, uh, in the same uh, prison cell. I so sorry. On the evening of the 24th of February, I was uh, I was at home when I got a got a message from my daughter who is 14, she's 14 and she told me she's going to go and demonstrate against the um against the Russian invasion uh, in Ukraine. And though I was not planning to attend, to be honest, I thought that I can't just sit at home while my daughter is there, since I know that sometimes it's uh, the uh, it's sometimes pretty brutal. And so with a friend of mine, I went there and I found her uh, not far from where the demonstration was supposed to take place. And there were quite very few people, in fact, and uh, very few people, uh, some police shouting that, you know, we should disperse. It was near the McDonald's on the Pushkin Square. And in fact, the first ever McDonald's in um, that was opened in Russia in 1991, I think. And so uh, we were just standing next to this McDonald's when uh, a number of policemen approached us really, really quickly. and. Uh, uh, they picked me for some reason and uh, quite brutally uh, put me down onto the ground and put my hands behind me. And before I knew it, I was in the um, in the police machine uh, among other 20, 25 uh, detainees. 
and we spent another hour or so inside this machine and then this machine took us to the police station on the outskirts of Moscow and and, and I spent the next few hours in this police station they were registering me and issuing me a, a visit to the court which I have to still have to the visit that probably going to be a fine of some few thousand rubles uh, my uh, a few of my relatives were detained also my daughter she got away also although she got uh, beaten a little bit but she got away and went home safely but um, some other relatives of mine were there on this on the Pushkin Square and my mother was on the other side and she also got detained and she in fact got detained uh, for the whole day uh, she got uh, a much bigger fine of about two thousand uh, dollars because that was her second uh, her second arrest in a year which is um, penalized by a fine or by uh, 30 days in uh, in prison and uh, there is this Russian law when uh, you know you 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 break uh, you break a certain uh, certain laws uh, demonstrating uh, once or twice or thrice you can in fact get as much as two years in prison just for uh, just for participating in peaceful demonstrations I've been talking with the Moscow-based journalist Mika Golubovsky to get a flavour of what life is like there now, with an international pariah as president. Mika himself was recently detained. The crime? A poster in the window of his home simply saying, no war. Yeah, well, I've been driving, walking, taking the metro around town uh, for the last several days and, you know, participating in some some of the protests not not all of them unfortunately just because you know they're happening constantly i didn't see really large amounts of people protesting you know gathered in one place but a lot of smaller groups you know in the hundreds uh, of people sometimes tens of people sometimes hundreds marching on the streets coming to the ukrainian embassy and uh, that kind of stuff, but that that mostly happens in the evenings, and it's happened since the war actually started. There are some queues to the banks, but people are withdrawing their money today. The ruble took another deep dive, and well, everyone's pretty sure it's going to be a very very rough time economically. But all of that is nothing compared to the shit that's happening in, in in Ukraine. I don't have words to, to describe. Were you surprised when the invasion happened, when we were told it was, it was that, that, that from, from the Kremlin, the view was it was part of the denazification of Ukraine? I mean, is that what people actually thought was happening? Uh, well, first of all, I don't really watch state TV. Uh, I only know what... Uh, they are talking about and what Putin is talking about uh, from, you know, other independent media, which still uh, surprisingly exists and we still have access to them. We don't know if that's going to last, but uh, for now, it's that uh, I must say that I was shocked and surprised by the start of the war because after... Uh, I mean, of course, we knew 
we read all the reports in the Western media about plans uh, to invade. What I personally thought is that this is like, you know, Putin's usual diplomatic stunt, his threats, uh, and nothing more. And after he and the state Duma uh, recognized the Donetsk and Lugansk state, uh, national peoples, whatever, republics, a lot of people thought that, okay, well, this is it. That means no, no war. And the fact that in two days it started was absolutely shocking to me. How big a risk is it to protest now? Or are the protests kind of almost like flash events? People people protest and then the authorities come and people disappear because undoubtedly they face arrest and harassment and yeah. all kinds of things. Well, uh, they don't just disperse and disappear, you know. For instance, uh, yesterday thousands of people went out on the streets and they were able to march, you know, splitting into... Uh, smaller groups, but still for several hours. In Moscow, somewhere around a thousand people were detained. I just wonder what you think of, of Ukraine itself. I know what you think of the war, but I mean, how do you see Ukraine? It's It was part of the Soviet Union. There are many Russian speakers there. Uh, there are some who feel very Russian there, I guess, in some areas, as you mentioned in those oblasts in the east. But how, how do you feel about Ukraine? Do you just see it as just another neighboring country or do you see it as something quite close? For me, of course, it, it's, it's, uh, it's quite close. I have far but still relatives in Kharkiv. Uh, I have friends in Kiev. Uh, my family actually is originally from Kharkiv and uh, part of it, part of it is uh, uh, actually from the Crimea. I'm one of millions like this. From the times of the Soviet Union, probably a lot of people did move around, did come to Moscow from all part, or from uh, Ukraine to Russia or from Russia to Ukraine to get education there. A lot of people I know have relatives in the Ukraine right now. And of course they are, uh, it, well, it, it's, it's, it's tragic really. You were saying that the independent media still exists, at least some of it, although it's had, as we've reported and you've helped us with, real difficulties. Do people really know what's going on? Uh, or at least have a sense of what's going on, have a, have, a, have a feeling that this is actually not going very well for Vladimir Putin? People who do have some access to uh, independent media and sources of information other than state-owned media, uh, of course, they're totally aware. And that's millions, uh, millions of people, maybe tens of millions of people. I'm pretty sure that millions of people in Russia do understand the uh, gravity and the, the tragedy of the situation. Do people know that uh, there's been a lot of reporting that Vladimir Putin has essentially moved uh, Russia's nuclear weapons to a new stage and that this is seen as... Oh, a yeah, really that, that was on know, state TV. That was that, on state that was TV. His, yeah, that was... Everybody knows that uh, because that was on state TV. And I must say that, you know, in the days prior to that, I thought I couldn't be more of a shock, but each day pro pro proves me wrong because it was like, it was uh, unimaginable, yet another unimaginable thing. 
Labour MP Chris Bryant leads the British Parliament's all-party group on Russia. I suppose, Chris, the, the most obvious question is, Putin has been talking for years, essentially, of revisionism of changing the map of Europe, of going back to the old Soviet Union, of losing the empire and wanting it back. So should we have seen this coming? Uh, Some of us have seen this coming for a very long time and have been saying so. And uh, for quite a while, it felt like we were crying in the wilderness. Now, some Russians were fleeing Russia uh, because of Putin, but many were coming here because it was a really good place to launder Russian dirty money. And I just don't think enough politicians in the UK were prepared to challenge that. And um, that's left us being very, very vulnerable in the UK. Um, But yes, of course, I mean, I I honestly cannot tell you how many times I've said in Parliament, look, what more do we need to know? Georgia, Crimea, um, engagement in Bosnia, in um, Montenegro, in Greece, in so many different ways, they have tried to attack Western democracy and trying to create a wider Russia. Yes, the writing was on the wall. And if you can't see the writing on the wall, you shouldn't be in politics. But you could see the money in the bank. I think that is the difference, isn't it? I mean, if Stalin had done all these things or Lenin or whatever, uh, as a communist, it wouldn't have worked. But because of the money, somehow, people were prepared to take the money and turn a blind eye to other things. We've we been addicted to, you know, bling. For too long, we, we um, you know, a large chunk of sort of high society in London has been, you know, high on that drug for rather too long, and um, it's done it terrible damage incidentally to not only the reputation of legal law firms and accountancy firms in the UK, but it's also done damage to the housing market. I mean, the number of properties you see, you know, along the Thames, which are empty, um, but were bought by Russian oligarchs effectively to launder ill-gotten gains uh, is uh, depressing because it's pushed the house prices up for everybody else. Can we look at some of the things that are being done now? I mean, broadly, the European Union, do you think, has... We've we've seen a historic change, haven't we? We, uh, Germany about to spend another 100 billion euros this year, in the next year, on on defence. I mean, all kinds of things are happening. Do you think this is an adequate response, at least from the EU? I think it's great that Germany's moving in this direction. I I mean, over the... 20 years that I've been an MP, I've seen moments where Europe has been fractured, either by Berlusconi going to bunga bunga parties with uh, Putin or by Germany being terrified of Russians, Russia switching off the gas. Um, so it is it is very impressive that the EU has managed to um, get all its ducks in a row at the same time in swift order. I was worried that Hungary, for instance, would um, you know end up backing Russia rather than um, joining the, the, the European fold uh, more securely. So it, it is impressive. I wish more countries have been paying um, more, contributing more to NATO for some considerable time. That might have helped. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I actually think that the EU should um, consider expediting uh, Ukraine's application for membership. What about NATO doing the same? Because, well, you know, you know what could follow then if uh, an attack on one is an attack on all. NATO is a more tender subject. Um, I fully understand that. And maybe um, we need to think carefully about that. But I wonder whether we shouldn't be creating air corridors at least um, so that uh, people who need to be evacuated can be evacuated. Otherwise, I think that there may be a terrible, the, the ensuing or the unfolding humanitarian crisis may get even worse. Uh, I worry 
about Sweden and Finland, and they must be worrying as well. So uh, it may well be that they want to fast track application to, to NATO. Um, but look, I mean, Putin's objective, so far as I can see, is to, out of damaged amour propre or pride um, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, is to, is to recreate 100 years after the old Soviet Union came into existence in, um, 20, in 1922, trying to recreate that, that massive colonial empire all over again. And um, what he's actually managed to do in the last eight years is he persuaded more Ukrainians to um, look to the West rather than to mm -hmm. Russia. Um, he's united Europe um, in a way that it's not been united for a considerable period of time. And I think he's strengthened the resolve of lots in the West. The simple fact is you can take Vladimir Putin out of the KGB, but you cannot take the KGB mindset out of Vladimir Putin. Throughout history, the KGB was best known for lies, subversion and merciless violence. Those who know Putin are therefore far from surprised that he started the biggest ground war in Europe since World War II, claiming in a ludicrous lie that Ukraine is run by Nazis. Here's what Daniel Fried, America's former ambassador to Poland, told us just a few months ago. Putin has now laid the basis for a claim to much more of Ukrainian territory by essentially asserting that the Ukrainian nation doesn't really exist except in close association to and subordination to Moscow. Putin had earlier raised much wider territorial claims against Ukraine um, out, uh, shortly after the invasion of Crimea and part of the Donbass. But he backed off those claims under pressure of US and European sanctions and Ukrainian resistance. It's always a good idea to pay attention to what leaders actually say. Not what people say about what they said, but what they actually said. Just like it's useful to read documents instead of press articles about documents. Following Daniel Fried's advice, we should therefore pay particular attention to Putin's public statement as his tanks began to roll into Ukraine. Whoever tries to impede us, let alone create threats for our country and its people, must know that the Russian response will be immediate and lead to the consequences you have never seen in history. A few days later, Putin announced that Russia's nuclear forces, roughly 5,000 warheads according to the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, and more than enough to destroy planet Earth many times over, were to be put on special alert as a result of supposedly aggressive statements by NATO countries. The result is now a security crisis worse even than the Cuban Missile Crisis of the 1960s, a hot war in Europe and a Russian leader raising the stakes of a nuclear attack. So, two big questions. How far is Putin prepared to go? And what or who will stop him? I ask Chris Bryant. Do you think, this is a blunt question, I don't really know if there's any answer to this. Do you think that Vladimir Putin is bonkers? He's, he's, he's got his finger on the nuclear button. Uh, he's behaving in a very, very strange way, even for an autocrat. And there are those who think he's he's losing it. 
Well, um, in 2014, when he invaded Crimea, I said in the House of Commons that a Russian friend had said to me, well, the thing is that Putin isn't mad yet. And I said then that the danger of us not imposing really severe sanctions back in 2014 is that he would learn that being a little bit mad gets you a long way. And my anxiety is that he has some learnt behaviours. And one of them is that the excessive use of force does sometimes work if, if you know, you can proceed with impunity, which is why I think it's so important that we use literally every single means we have of degrading uh, Russia's opportunities, um, undermining the Russian economy, undermining the Russian people's support for Putin and trying to get Putin to withdraw his troops and end the war. I mean, in the end, I hope, of course, Putin will face war crime um, charges in, in a court of law and end his days in prison, along with all those who supported him. But it's difficult not to conclude that either he is now so deranged that it's impossible to control him or else there's just enough derangement that he's fallen in love with what happens when he's a bit deranged. What should we do about what has been the Putin fan club in the West? I mean, it extends from Trump to Farage, extends from people on the far right, broadly of British politics, to people on the far left, who not only sort of tolerate him, but continue to make excuses for him. Uh, They should be utterly ashamed of themselves. Every single dead child, dead civilian, murdered Ukrainian soldier should be on their conscience. Um because we've been saying this for a long time. And the only person who is responsible for this war is Vladimir Putin. Nobody else. All this paranoia about being surrounded by NATO. Only 16% of the Russian Federation's border touches on NATO countries. I mean, it's just a preposterous argument that they've advanced. This is a naked war of aggression. I think initiating a war of aggression is a war crime and should be treated as such. Have you any clues, any better than anyone else as to how this will end. I mean, there are those who say that Putin may be isolated, that this may be actually a symptom not of his success, but of the fact that uh, even within his own circle, uh, he is regarded now as somebody who has gone too far because they are hurting and the oligarchs, some of them at least, will be hurting. So uh, there could even be a coup, some some people think. I mean, do you have any idea what, what could happen? The most protected asset in the world is Putin. So it's very difficult to know exactly what goes on in the, in the Kremlin. But I, there's just a bit of me that remembers that um, Ukrainian woman going up to a Russian soldier and giving him seeds and saying to put them in his pocket because she hoped that when he was lying in Ukrainian earth, seedlings would grow out of those seeds. And I just wonder whether Putin hasn't effectively put seeds in his own pocket. For obvious reasons, if Putin is not stopped, Georgia may be next on his list. Like Ukraine, it's not in NATO, not in the EU, but wants to be in both. Natia Siskuria says Georgians have been preparing for this for years. What's, what strikes me about our conversation now is that Putin's own words over the past 20 years have made it absolutely clear that he's a revisionist or a revanchist. He wants to rewrite the history of Europe. He wants his empire back. Uh, He's prepared to do almost anything. In other words, although this is a shock, it was absolutely predictable that something like this would happen. Yes, absolutely. And I think uh, Georgians and Ukrainians, we've been warning um, European states, um, the US, the West in general, 
the war in Georgia in 2008 is far from being over. Even though we, we know this uh, event as a five-day war, uh, the uh, Russian active measures are still ongoing. Sim similar thing has happened in Crimea, in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine, um, when, when we are talking about Russian invasion of Ukraine now, this is the Russian re-invasion of Ukraine, in fact, because Ukraine has been at war for the past eight years. So um, this was a very much predictable for, um, for countries like Georgia and Ukraine, um, because we've been at war for many, many years. However, I think uh, the West has largely underestimated the Russian threat. And uh, there is, I think, a sense of acknowledgement of how much the West has missed um, right now, uh, because uh, this is a, just a logical continuation of what Russia has been doing for the past couple of years. And um, the Russian threat, um, the underestimation of the Russian threat. So. Um, these examples show um, the uh, aspirations of the Putin's regime, uh, and these aspirations are very ambitious. Uh, these aspirations does not stop at Ukraine. And I think he sees this entire military campaign uh, in Ukraine right now as, as a part of his future legacy. And uh, even though I think this decision, even from Putin's perspective, is not rational, he's ready to risk it all. In October 1939, Winston Churchill famously said of Stalin's Russia, I cannot forecast to you the action of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Less famous are the next two sentences, but perhaps there's a key. That key is Russian national interest. Today's riddle, mystery and enigma is Vladimir Putin. But Churchill was correct. The key, again, is Russia's national interest. It's an underdeveloped country of great potential and great people being led by an aging autocrat who's murdering his neighbours. Maybe we should also rework another famous phrase from the 1930s. If you tolerate this, then your children will be next. We want to end with voices from Kiev. First is Yulia Dziuba, who is a parliamentary assistant in Ukraine. And finally, Kira Rudik. She's a member of parliament who has picked up an assault rifle and is determined to defend her city. No one has united Ukraine like Putin, the murderer and the sadist. He continues to bomb my hometown Chernigiv where my family lives and is located. Yesterday, the Russians destroyed one of the beauties in my city, the old buildings of the cinema and now the youth center. Let me remind you, this is 21st century, the time of democracy, human rights. It's not 1944, but Nazism is alive, and it is Nazism the glorification of the nation. Uh, propaganda, lies, fear, it is all Russia. It is hard for me to talk about it, but it's reality now. I plan to stay here and live and build free Ukraine. Well, well first of all, I don't know if you hear it on your podcast, but the shelling started. Oh, the siren. Let me go like a little bit downstairs because it's like badly. So what we need, we need time to regroup our troops and we hope that the sanctions that were imposed on Putin and that uh, actually, honestly, they started 
working only today because today uh, is the first banking day since then when the uh, ruble went down i think like what one uh, dollar to 200 rubles or something so it was like it went two or three times down and uh, banks were sanctioned so people will not be able to take money from them so uh, regular russians will feel that putin's attempt to conquer the world and restore soviet union that it actually has an impact on their life and this is the most important and this is why we think it will be weakening him out and at some point he will be weak enough to uh, start real negotiations not the not the fake ones as it is right now and honestly from our experience with putin in eight years of war i can give a simple advice so if putin says it is not us it's not our troops this means it's us it's our troops if he says i want peace this means i'm gathering my troops and i'm ready to invade if he says i'm taking back my troops it means i'm regrouping to hit you from the other side and we have seen all of that like even during the last six months he is mad it's like again we know that he is a crazy person again like for eight years you don't see uh, the demonstrations throughout the world that would be saying go russia right and uh, uh, same thing with uh, no no demonstration inside the country saying oh putin is our dearest leader right i imagine only imagine that oligarchs who are surrounding him who are uh, who will have to take their children back from London and Miami to uh, beautiful, magnificent places such as Sochi and Oryol and other places, I should also be pissed, right? So, again, keeping this all in mind, you should be either very crazy or very, very, very smart and have some some good plan, which we don't see right now. So, so we can logically assume that he is uh, out of his mind and uh, go from this. Putin is trying to take my country, my city, and my home for his own crazy purposes. But like, if you're trying to explain it to a child, like why, why is there the war? The answer is nobody knows. He's crazy and that's it. We're going to be releasing episodes of The Big Steel over the next few months as the story develops and as we observe the tragedy happening in Ukraine. Make sure you subscribe and that way you'll be alerted when there are new episodes. Stay safe.